it's wonderful to be with you. And if, uh, if you're listening on, on the podcast, thanks for joining us. If you're here for the first time on a Sunday, it's great to have you here. Um, you've joined us on the fourth week of a series that we've been doing. I also preached the Sunday before that. See, this poor church has listened to me for five weeks on the trot. So you are, you've done well if you've only arrived here today. You've spared yourself some suffering. Um, and I'm preaching next week as well. So it'll be six weeks in a row at the beginning of the year. And then, we're having a, then I'm having a baby, and then I won't preach for ages. Um, or maybe if it goes like last time, Bern will have the baby. <clears throat> My wife, and I'll just be around, uh, you know, to offer support and whatever you're supposed to say in the delivery room. If anyone knows what you're supposed to say, please let me know, <laughs> because apparently I didn't say the right things last time. Anyway, this is not a confessional. Let me get to what we're supposed to do. Um, if you... Uh, if you are aware or have been vaguely tracking with us in this seven series, and we're talking about the kind of community God has designed us to be. Uh, we've looked briefly at some of the great historical figures of Scripture and just of more recent history where anyone who's achieved anything amazing always seems to have a really impressive group around them. For every Edmund Hillary, there's a Sherpa, Tenzing Norgay, and the team of exceptional mountaineers around him. Uh, King David in the Bible, famous, pretty impressive. His group of mighty men, each one of them in their own right, was probably more badass than King David was. There's something about the group of people you surround yourself with that unlocks your destiny. And let's not just write that off as some kind of vague idea. If that's true, that deserves some serious attention. That your destiny, that you're living into the glorious, intimidating, impossible plan that God has for your life uh, requires you to take seriously the, the community that you're in, the group of people that you put around yourself. Um, and so we've been discussing, well, if this church is potentially going to be that for you, to unlock the amazing things that God has for you, then what should our community be like? And we've spoken about courage, and we've spoken about the Holy Spirit, for example, last week, I think probably the most important sermon of the whole series, that we can have some nice ideas, and we can have some nice structures, and we can do some, some nice things, but if the Holy Spirit isn't empowering this, this is going to be fairly ordinary. But if the Holy Spirit gets involved, if we give him space to fill us personally and corporately, then amazing stuff is possible. That nothing impressive is going to happen without him, and that when you allow the Holy Spirit to get into the, the center of what we're doing and allow him to fill your life, he makes you brave. He puts the spotlight on Jesus. He allows you to figure out, once and for all, what is it about this Galilean carpenter that caused grown men to crave his company? What is it about this man that lived 2,000 years ago that made people drop whatever they were doing to just hang on every word? Why is it that prostitutes and battered women found him safe? Why is it that children couldn't get enough of him? Why is it that teachers of the law wanted desperately to debate with him? Why is it that thousands of years later, people are still building their lives on him? What is it about this man that is so impressive? And you're not really going to find that by reading in a book. Not even the Bible, I'm afraid. You're going to figure out really vividly, truly who he is when you allow the Holy Spirit into your life to illuminate him. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. And so that's what we discussed last week. It was hugely important. And then on Wednesday night, we had an evening get filled, uh, packed out the room upstairs, people hungry to experience God. It was amazing. Really, really cool uh, stuff is going on. So that's what we've been talking about so far in this series is what kind of community are we going to be? Today, we're going to, in that same vein, talk not about the Holy Spirit, who, if you like, is the sort of juice and power to what we're trying to do, but the central idea. What is the idea that's holding us together? What is the concept? What's the philosophical bedrock? What's the kind of building block that everything needs to be about? And you will hear the word gospel 
spoken. Many Christians use that term, not necessarily sure what that actually means. Some of you might have a vague idea, but we'll be quite keen to just make sure you know exactly what the gospel is. And so that's what we're going to discuss. If you are exploring the claims of Christ, you couldn't have come on a better day. Um, if you've gone a bit cold or taken a bit of a scenic bundu bashing route away from church for the last little while, and you're here again, you couldn't have picked a better day. Because this is the central concept. This is the big idea. This is probably our only idea, actually, so I hope it's good. Um, but we're going to figure out what is the gospel, actually, and that's just a fancy term for good news, just direct translation. What's this good news? What's so good about this news? Uh, is it just about attending church on Sundays and trying to pray and doing some good things and fear bad things? Is that really what this is about? Or is there something more desirable, more fascinating about the big idea? Uh, and just as a warning, uh, I'm going to use the word sin quite a lot in this sermon, and it doesn't bring me pleasure to do that, but let's just get that right, because sin's this kind of terrifying S word. Sin just means trying to get satisfied any other way but in God. That's all it is. Sin is trying to find satisfaction other than in God, which means sometimes even good things can be sin. So this isn't some sort of scary moral list of do's and don'ts. God, if he's good, thinks that he is deeply desirable and deeply satisfying to you. And he's so convinced that he is going to satisfy you better than anything else that he encourages you not to eat the junk food when he's the main meal. That's what sin is. Eating the junk food, getting addicted to the bad stuff that isn't going to satisfy you properly. And he's going, no, 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 live this way. This is going to really satisfy you. So when I use the word sin, that's all I'm talking about. There's no big, scary fire and brimstone into this preach. Um, but that's, yeah, that's where we're going. I must just admit to you, before we get started, that I'm feeling quite insecure. Um, in the last few weeks... There's been a fair amount of chat about the speed at which I speak, which has caused me to doubt the last seven years of preaching. Um, so every time my father-in-law comes from Kronstadt here, uh, at the end of every sermon, you get that that was great, but everyone loves the but. Um, and, and his thing is always, you speak so fast. And up until now, I've gone, you are very old, and you're from a very small town. That explains it. We, we, you know, a little sharper here in the big city. We can listen a bit better. Um, we listen carefully like Jacob Zuma told us to. You know, we're not, um, we're, we're not as, as backward and slow as the people from Kronstadt. And then I discovered that Bird, my wife, listens to the podcast of the preachers on half speed, which worried me deeply. <coughs> um, for a couple of reasons. Firstly, <laughs> when you... Um, when you put it on half speed, it's really half speed. So the 35-minute sermon is an hour and something, which then I discovered last week I had to record the sermon after the fact because there was a problem technically. Uh, so if you've listened to it, you know, now I'm sitting alone at home and I recorded. And the same sermon, in fact, I left some stuff out, took me an hour to record. So I'm a little worried that I'm just preaching an hour's worth of content at you in 30 minutes. Um, and that means that I don't know how to prepare sermons, obviously, because when I write it, I think it's half an hour's worth of stuff. Anyway, so that's causing me uh, concern uh, and a little insecurity about the speed at which Motormouth Taylor is going to go at you today. Um, but also, when you listen to the podcast on half speed, which now I know Byrne is going to do later, um, I sound... Well, a friend of mine said it sounded like I'd drunk a big pot of chamomile tea, which is a very innocent description because I think I sound like I've drunk something not chamomile tea. Um, and that's, yeah, I sound like an absolute idiot. I mean, like the, the technical term retarded means to be slowed down. I sound retarded <laughs> on the podcast. Anyway, so I'm going to do my best to try and speak at a reasonable speed. Um, but that's just a segue into the idea that everyone's insecure. Have you noticed? What is it about ins everyone's insecure about something? I don't know if you've 
spotted this, but I don't think there's a human being on earth who's not insecure about something. That's fascinating to me. Why? Why are we insecure about stuff? Why is it that we are feeling some kind of shame or some kind of need to hide something or, or, or to overcompensate? Why is every single person on this planet insecure? I'm just telling you that that's true if you don't quite believe it, but I think you do, that you know that there is some insecurity in you, that there's some insecurity in everyone. And all of our bad behavior, all of our relational mess-ups, all of the stuff we get ourselves into, all of our stress can probably be traced back to an insecurity, can't it? I think, this may sound like a strange leap to make, I think that is a great argument for the existence of God. If there's no designer, if there's no sense of perfection, if there's no innate idea that we are supposed to live up to some glorious standard, if we just evolved and we've turned up and we've got to where we've got to, you would think that maybe some people are insecure and some aren't. But the fact that everyone is insecure about something, I think, points to the fact that you were designed by a glorious father to be a lot more impressive than you are. To be a lot more impressive than you are. I'm sorry to reinforce the insecurity, but you and I, every human being, we're designed to be a lot more impressive than we are. The greenies and environmentalists look at the human race as the cancer that the world has. And they're not really wrong, are they? Pretty much everything that's wrong with this planet is us. And we're not just infecting the host and destroying the host, we're destroying one another. We treat each other badly, we treat our planet badly, we are not glorious. You might spend a lot of time working to prove that you're better than so-and-so next to you, but at rock bottom, all of us know that we're not really measuring up. And the way you can tell is that you feel insecure about something. Could I give the whole church access to your financial history? Could I give the church, everyone sitting here, could we put up on the screen your, all your recent online behavior and the stuff you've said to people? Could we, if that's not scary enough, get a live stream of your thoughts for the last, let's be kind, 48 hours? Would you be comfortable with that? I'd be very surprised. We've fallen short. We're not that impressive. And we have this idea, we have this sort of nagging suspicion that we were designed to be more glorious than we are. So we spend a lot of time judging everyone else and looking how bad they are and human trafficking and this and that and the, the, you know, the, the species is rotten, but I'm a little bit better than the worst of them. But back at the ranch, you're fairly confident. I am broken in some way. I'm hurting others in some way. I'm not measuring up to my own standards perfectly, and I'm not even sure that my own standards are that great. If they are glorious standards for me, if I was designed by a perfect God, I'm falling way short. And feeling insecure is the rational thing for you to do. That's a great start. That's a, that's a crowd pleaser. Um, if insecurity is a universal human experience, what else is a hu universal human experience? They talk about death and taxes, but I know many of you don't, I mean, many people don't pay taxes. But everyone dies, right? And the other thing that everyone does is experience stress. So let's go death, stress, and insecurity. If those are the three kind of unescapable, unpleasant versions of the human condition that we're all experiencing. <laughs> this may sound optimistic, but I want to show you how the gospel, the central idea of Christianity, not only can solve, but does solve, and is the only thing that can solve all three of those problems. Death, insecurity, and stress, performance, anxiety, all that stuff can be solved by the central idea of the Christian faith. And in fact, your relational chaos, your lack of peace, all that other stuff, they're great side benefits as well. But we're going to go after those three ideas. Uh, and to, to use different language to talk about death, stress, 
and insecurity, um, I'm going to talk about the first story in the Bible. We're going to go to Genesis and see where it all went pear-shaped in the beginning. And you'll see that those same three things are the problem that start right then uh, and continue on. And before I go to that passage, I just want to put, give you like a metaphor for what this conversation, I think, should mean to our community. Uh, Ernest Shackleton. British explorer going to the South Pole. I mentioned him at the beginning of this series, put out a crazy advert asking for people who were basically prepared to die and not be well paid. And uh, all these nutcases sign up. Uh, and they head off to the South Pole to try and be the first team to, to get to the South Pole and off the other side, I think. They were trying to do something huge. Their ship, the Endurance, r- runs into unseasonable ice and, uh, and incredibly cold temperatures, which I know you might go, well, it's the South Pole, but I mean, even for the South Pole at that time of year, these were unprecedented and unforecasted. So they get caught in ice a long way before they've even reached the shore of solid ground for them to start traveling on. Sea ice is no good to travel over because it's not smooth. There are waves that have frozen halfway through and cracks and movement, which means that you are trying to traverse a glacier, basically. And uh, that's cracking and moving underneath you and isn't, isn't passageable. Their ship gets caught in ice, the endurance, and starts to become crushed. Uh, Behind me, you can see it's listing over at a crazy angle. They realize there's no way for them to get it out. They bail off whatever supplies they can. Uh, The sled dogs, the tents, thin cotton tents, no North Face fancy Gore-Tex gear in those days. And um, they're on on, on the kind of precipice looking at their ship, and she crunches once and for all and goes underwater. And the final term, the final phrase for this glorious ship that was supposed to kind of carry them so far was, there she goes, boys. And 27 or something sailors are now marooned on sea ice with no means of transport except three lifeboats. Now, the end of the story is incredible. Shackleton saves them all. Not a single one dies. They all get home, and in the process, get to islands no one ever has been to before, climb mountains that no one's mapped before, cover the, you know, travel over incredibly inhospitable waters and makeshift, slightly modified lifeboats. It's an incredible story. But early on, Shackleton decides, well, we need to move from where we are. They were trying to get to a point that was going to give them an easier access to an island. And they're trying to read the compass and the map and drag their three boats over the ice with them. This is a mad plan. And actually, it turned out to be a very bad plan. They then turned back after a while because they were destroying the boats, and they found another way to get through the ice fields. But the only thing that they had was each other. No one was coming for them. No one even knew that they were stranded. They were going to have to work together and find a way somehow to survive. And in the process, there's one member of the party called Henry Chippy McNish. Uh, The astute amongst you may notice that he's Scottish. And Chippy McNish was the carpenter. Uh, He's a fairly disreputable-looking character on the right there. This is after a few days on the ice. This is how shell-shocked and worn down they've become. So you've got Shackleton, who is this, he's like the ultimate Englishman in New York. You know, he's like sophisticated, he's, he's a really high caliber guy. Even though they're in these extreme conditions, he's still made it mandatory that every man shave every morning and keep his journal. I mean, that's, that's British, if you've ever wondered. That's the definition of British. Um, and, and he's you know, a really fine man with these high standards, and, and he serves his men, and he's up first every morning, taking them milk, and he's... But now they're dragging the boats, and Chippy McNish has been having a little moan, as Scotsmen are wont to do. Uh, and he's particularly concerned that they're not going to be paid. 
I'm not going to make any Scottish jokes about that, but I mean, draw whatever conclusions you want. Because uh, he's worried that because they don't have a ship, they're not going to get paid. And every sailor knows no ship, no pay. And so he's kind of spreading dissent in the ranks and going, ah, he's not even going to pay us. He doesn't know what he's doing. Dragging these boats, we're busy breaking the boats. And he made me kill my cat, which is another thing. And apparently you should never mess with cats. So I don't know, maybe Shackleton had it coming. But at some point, Shackleton starts to realize that Chippy McNish is going to create such division in the group that they are in danger because they need to stick together. They need to trust their leader if they're going to have any chance of getting out of this situation alive. And so they're dragging the boats one day, and Chippy's having a full go. And men are starting to feel a little, should we even follow Shackleton if we're not being paid and he doesn't know what we're doing? And Shackleton turns around. Now, just have in your mind this very fine, very urbane, very high standard dude. He walks up to Chippy McNish. He pulls a gun out of his holster. He points it at Chippy McNish's forehead. And he says, I am the master of this expedition, and my job is to keep all of these men safe. And right now, you are the most threatening danger to them. And so you either join in with us and follow what I'm saying, or out of protection for them, I'm going to have to kill you. That's pretty extreme. He also then rips out a copy of the contract and says, you're being paid whether you're on ship or on land or under any reasonable instruction of mine, and sorts out the mutiny. Now, why am I telling you this story? I'm not about to pull a luger out of my pocket and point it at you. And, um, and if you're exploring the claims of Christ, you're off the hook on this one. You can just look in. But Christians, if I could somehow implore you, this is the main idea. We have got to get behind this one idea. We've got to hold it reverently and tightly and clearly. And if we don't get behind this one idea, we're going to end up going in all sorts of different directions and end up not being saved in the end of it, potentially. Okay, that's probably a dreadful ex- extension of the metaphor. But we are going to end up in trouble. We're not going to walk into the full life we could if we don't grab hold of this one idea, what the gospel actually is. Okay, so with no luger in hand, no fish-smelling, sif, cat-killing, South Pole explorer up front, just me. But we're going to look at this idea, and we're going to take it as seriously as Shackleton wanted his team to take that central idea seriously, that they owed their lives to one another. This is the idea we're going to build our community around. And it starts in Genesis 3. And this big idea starts with a very sad story. Adam and Eve fall. Adam and Eve sin, which, remember, we've just defined as they try to find satisfaction outside of God. They no longer trust him to satisfy them and have their best interests at heart, and they look for another way to get satisfied. And so it goes like this from verse 6. When the woman saw, so they're standing together, and Adam can't be bothered to chime in and even make his own mistakes himself. He just passively goes along with this conversation. When the woman saw that the fruits of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom. Those are three really interesting things we'll come back to in a moment. Good for food, pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. Even though God had said, don't eat that, it'll kill you. I have better things for you. That's junk food. She decides to eat it anyway. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And the next thing that happens is they hide from God. God eventually tracks them down, and they start blaming one another and blaming the snake. So three interesting responses to three interesting temptations. The two of them look at something that they are told is no good for them, but they still end up not trusting God and grabbing hold of it. Why do we do this? Why do humans grab hold of something that's not good for us? Well, because either it looks good to the eye, It has some beauty about it. There's something appealing about this thing. It's attractive. 
It also looked good for food. It appeals to some flesh need of ours, some, some sense of hunger that we might have. So not only might it be beautiful, and that may be one reason why you fall for the liar, it also might promise to satisfy some need of yours, some desire, which is not necessarily an evil desire, but one which, is, which God has put in you to say, well, come towards me. I'm going to satisfy that desire in legitimate ways. But the hunger overtakes us, and this thing tempts us by promising to meet that desire, that appetite. Or thirdly, and possibly most insidiously, it promises to make you better than you think you are, which is such a dreadful, vicious cycle, because in separating from God, in going their own way, they have now set in motion things that are going to make them and us insecure for good reason. In that moment, while they're connected to their father, they have nothing to feel insecure about. They're totally satisfied. They're great. They're doing fine. And yet the first marketing agency on earth, the serpent, comes to him and says, if you have this, you'll be a little wiser. If you have this, you'll be a little more impressive. And because they don't trust that God is good, and because most importantly, I suppose, they don't trust that they are actually good, they fall for it. They think they're lacking something, and so they grab hold of what they should never grab hold of. Interesting to me that the ways in which we fall short, the ways in which you do the things which deep down you know you shouldn't do, will always come packaged either very beautifully or promising to satisfy some need of yours, or promising to shore up and cover over some area that you feel like you're lacking. Satan never turns up in our lives with horns and scales and smelling noxious. He turns up beautifully. He turns up in a great suit. He turns up with a good marketing campaign and sells us something that actually isn't going to do the thing that it promises to do. And so this is what happens to them. Those are the three ways that they're tempted. It's the three ways that we continue to be tempted. And then the three responses they have are the same three responses we have. They hide. Shame enters the story for the first time, and it's never left. You might call it insecurity, but if you're wise, you know that there's some shame. Shame is not just, oh, I did something wrong. It's there's something wrong with me. And that way of thinking has occurred to every single human on the face of the earth at some point. There's something wrong with me. There's something that I dare not let them know. And so they hide. They withdraw from God, and they hide. And then, because of this feeling of inadequacy and insecurity and shame, they blame. And that's the next thing that all human beings do. We abdicate some level of responsibility, and we say, well, my problems are because of God, or the devil made me do it, or she made me do it, or that request was totally unreasonable. And we start trying to apportion responsibility to other people, when in fact, friends, no one else is in charge of your life but you. No one else is deciding how you respond but you. And yet we, like our forefathers, love to try and apportion blame elsewhere and make excuses. And the reason we make excuses and try to defend and try to deflect is because we feel so ashamed. We can't just own it. We feel in some way inadequate, and so then we start to blame, and all human relational chaos begins in that moment. Competition enters. Deception enters because they start to blame one another. No, God, it was her. No, God, it was him. No, God, it was the snake. No, God, the request was unrealistic in the first place. And then the final thing that they do, and this is really interesting because... You won't automatically think this is something that you do in response to your insecurities. But they go and find a fig leaf. And for those listening on the podcast, um, I'm hiding behind a palm tree at this point. And um, they realize their shame, most vividly portrayed in that moment as nakedness. And they go, well, we can do something about this. And so they take leaves, which, as you know, as soon as you pluck them off a tree, wilt. They're no good unless they're connected to the tree, which is an interesting allegory for the fact that you are actually no good unless you're connected to the vine. But they take leaves off a tree and start stitching them together to try and cover over what they've done. 
we'll fix it, we'll make it right. That is the classic human response to our failings. There's something I can do to cover over. There's something I can do to make myself better. I will get my kids to be awesome. That'll cover over my failings. I will get my business to be awesome. That'll cover over my failings. I will keep my verge perfectly cut so that my neighbors look at me and don't think I have any reason to be insecure. I will, whatever it is, we find ways. I will attend church a lot and be able to quote a lot of Bible. If that's a way to cover over, then that's sin. And we find ways to try and patch up and cover over. All religion is this. All performance anxiety is this. This is where stress comes from. Stress is in your life and in my life because we are pushing further than we're able in order to try and cover over for inadequacies and insecurities that we have. And we take risks we shouldn't take. And we try to patch ourselves together with something which is failing. It's a crumbling facade. And so we're always having to patch it and re bolster it to keep the mask looking as believable as we want it to look. This isn't fun to preach. I'm sure this is no fun to listen to, but does this resonate at all? This is how we work. And so we're tempted by the same things our forefathers were tempted by, and we respond in the same ways that our forefathers respond. And the news is bad because, well, let me just quote Paul to you. We're going to stay in Romans 5 for a bit. This is a massive piece of scripture. Books have been written on each verse that we're about to read. So we're not just able to do a good enough job. But this is how Paul describes what's happened. Therefore, from verse 12, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death came to all people because all sinned. Let's just pause there for a second. That's interesting. Death came into the world because we tried to satisfy ourselves some other way but God. What does he mean by death? Well, as you know, your body is going to expire at some point. You'll peg out. But he means much more than that, doesn't he? Because every time, you know this, every time you, you sin, every time you allow shame in, you allow blame in, you allow covering up to start, we create death around ourselves every time we do that. When you cheat on your spouse, you cause death in that marriage. When you try to control your child, you cause death in that little personality. When you joke the books and treat your Suppliers and clients in skullduggerous and dishonest ways, you cause death in that business. Every time we choose not to be satisfied in God and instead are satisfied elsewhere, we create death in that area. And our efforts to cover up only make it worse. And so death has arrived. But this is fascinating. Death came in because of sin. That means death is not natural. Death is an alien idea. This is reassuring. This is quite encouraging. When someone passes away and it feels unnatural to you, good. It's not supposed to be natural. Although this is the ultimate statistic, although this is a universal part of the human condition that we die, it's not supposed to be that way. No wonder it feels unnatural. No wonder every one of us suffer from the delusion that we are supposed to be immortal. It's because you were. You are. Death is a foreign concept. And so is sin and all this brokenness. That entered the world as well. Which means death Stress and insecurity are not normal parts of the human experience. We have allowed them in and they have caused all this pain and suffering. So the solution might be, well, great. Let me just do a really good job of making you feel FOMO towards God and you're going to go to him to the source of life and get satisfied the way you were supposed to. There's a great big problem with that. And that is that he, as not only the satisfier and source of life, but also as the sovereign king of the universe was owed your obedience, and now because you've gone elsewhere to get satisfied elsewhere, you are guilty in his sight. The Bible calls you his enemy, which means not only are we 
corrupted to the point where we keep on choosing death and damaging ourselves with our desires, we're also guilty. We don't get to be in his presence, even as though we start to realize that we need it, you still have no access. And this is the seriously bad news. This is the backdrop against which the good news gets described by Paul. You are not only hopeless and helpless in your brokenness, you're also guilty and can't get back to the person that would satisfy. Verse 13 argues the fact that whether you were part of the Jewish people and had the law or not, we're all equally sinful and we keep dying in the same way. You could probably, this may help you, see the whole Old Testament well, from the Mosaic law as basically God doing a kind of psychological, social experiment to prove to us, all right, you think you can sow fig leaves? You think you can cover over? I'm going to give you the best possible law. I'm going to give you the best possible way to cover over. And still it didn't work. So from verse 13, Paul's just going, whether you had the law or not, whether you, had the, whether you were part of the people of God or not, whether you had the express commandments or not, made no difference. You can't cover over. You can't fix yourself. From verse 14, nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who didn't sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. Very quickly, this is a whole theological thing. Siakulisi. Okay. Didn't see that coming, did you? Siakulisi. It's kind of like a representative of all of us, isn't he? In a strange way, even though it's just rugby. I mean, and I say that with fear and trepidation, but like, it's just rugby. But somehow we all felt like we were in that team and that he represented us. And the fact that Siakulisi is the coolest human being on earth now and the champion of the world in rugby kind of makes you and me as South Africans feel a little bit like we're champions as well. That's a very thin version of what Paul is arguing here, that there is this idea that one person can represent many. And we actually buy into this idea more than we would admit. And whether it's Sia Kulisi or whoever is your sort of representative, older folks here, like my father-in-law, would talk about Gary Player as this, like, you know, the representative that you stand behind, that you kind of rise or fall based on their performance, is not a foreign concept. And we get that idea from God. And so initially, Adam was that for us. And however well or badly Adam did, however those four fathers of ours passed the test or failed the test, we were going to live in the consequences of that. And that may sound unfair, but unfair is good when you hear how this goes, because he's not the only representative that you stand in if you've believed in Jesus. But Adam, as a representative for us, chose to be satisfied outside of God, and as a result, hiding, blaming, covering up entered the world, and death went and got its tentacles into all of life as a result. So, from verse 15. Here's where the good news starts to come. This is the simple explanation of the gospel. The gift is not like the trespass. The thing that Jesus has done is not like the thing that Adam did. The new story is so much better than the old story, and this is why it's different. For if many died by the trespass of the one man, by Adam's fail, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many? So we've said we have these twin problems. We are helpless in death. We keep choosing badly and being a cancer to one another and this planet. And not only are we helpless, we're also guilty. So we have a life source problem and we have a legal problem. All right? So we're helpless in the fact that we keep choosing stuff that's bad for us. And we're guilty in the fact that we can't get back to the one who's the correct source for us. First problem dealt with. Jesus came, and although many died in the thing that Adam did, many are going to live in the thing that Jesus has done. It's so much better. It overflows to many. Verse 16, nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of the one man's sin. The judgment, so this is the guilt problem, the judgment 
followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. That's a cool theological word you can know from now on. So we're helpless and hopeless in the fact that we are fundamentally corrupted and our desires cause us to do things that are bad for us. We are addicted now to the junk food. And Jesus dies on our behalf so that that gets solved. We're also guilty. We're guilty and enemies of God because we should have been choosing him all along and we've been breaking his law. And Jesus deals with that guilt as well. So we are no longer helpless and we're no longer guilty. He sorted both out. And he's done this in such a more powerful way than Adam made the first mistake. For if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? There's a series of movies, which I don't recommend you ever watch. As a kid, I watched these and lost many hours of sleep. Um, It's called Final Destination. And death is figured as this sort of personality. And these are creepy movies. It makes me scared just to talk about them. And death is like trying to hunt you down. You know, if in some way you dodged it and you were supposed to peg out and you didn't, then death's going to get you. Um, And whether it's by getting your hands stuck in some waste disposal thing or logs fall off a a truck, like it's it's a creepy movie. But the idea that death is some sort of personality is actually not a million miles from the truth. That mankind, in choosing not to be satisfied in God, has actually, and I mean, we could talk at length about what this means for the authority that human beings on earth actually have. But it's fascinating to me that even though angels had rebelled against God, even though we weren't the first ones, when mankind rebelled against God, I mean, Satan's already been sinning, right? But when mankind rebels against God, then death enters the, the planet, then corruption starts. And this, this prince, this monarch reigns, death reigns here. There is no way for you to escape it. You're not going to get away with it. No matter how much money you amass, no matter how impressive you become, no matter how many followers you have on Instagram, you're still going to die. There is serious power to death. And yet what Jesus has done just robs him of his power. Just renders him weak. And you get to go, death, I'm no longer scared of you. I'm not scared of my physical death. And in fact, all the fruit of death in my life, all these choices I kept making and this relational chaos and this psychological chaos and all the evidence of death in my life, it's no longer my destiny. I'm not forced to choose the way that every other human being up until now has chosen to choose. I get to live a totally different way. And in the way that death used to reign, now you get to reign in life. You get to be free from the stuff that we used to be helpless in, our bad choices, and you are made right with God, which means legally you have access to the one who was supposed to be satisfying you in the very beginning. And your interaction with creation, and your interaction with sex, and your interaction with money, and your interaction with everything is able to become realigned with the way God intended for you to use those things to get to Him. This is good news. We were hopeless and we were guilty. Now we are free from the, the, the power of sin and free from the consequences of it. You're no longer guilty and you're no longer destined to do it. Amazing. What does this actually allow us to do as a community? If we're saying this is the, you know, if Shackleton's got his Luger out and saying this is the big idea, in the next few minutes, I just want to describe to you how if we really let this idea get into us, it would make us live. Because I worry that many of us this may not be true of you, but just anecdotally, I suspect, I don't think either of us, I don't think any of us take either of these two extremes seriously enough. I think we find ourselves kind of hedging our bets somewhere in between these two ideas. But the two ideas are this. You are worse than you thought. And he is better than you thought. Paul keeps going, how much more, how much more has Jesus' gift nullified and canceled the effects of Adam's sin? And yet most of us go, ah, I don't know that Adam's sin is really affecting me that much. I'm, I'm okay. I'm not that bad. 
wrong. You're worse than you thought. Nah, but I'm better than so-and-so. I mean, you would have a good time just looking up and down the rows of this church and thinking you're better than so-and-so. Not important. It doesn't help. We are so much further from access to God than we could dare dream. We are in so much trouble. We are choosing in ways that hurts us. We are guilty before the throne of the holy God. You have no hope. But if that news is worse than you used to imagine, if you are in worse shape than you used to imagine, then what he has done for you is better than you ever did imagine. If it was inevitable that you would die, if there was nothing you could do to to prevent death before, there is now nothing in Christ Jesus that you can do to prevent life. You can't mess this up. Just like you couldn't fix it before, you now can't mess it up. That what he has done for you is so much more potent than what your fallen human nature did in the first place, which means Christians can't mess up their salvation. It means you can't mess up the love of God for you. It means that there is no way for you to somehow take responsibility back for your sin. It's already been paid for. What he has done is so much better than we dare dream. But your state without him is so much worse than you dared imagine. And I think we kind of hybrid between those two, which means that when we mess up, we feel quite guilty and we think we're supposed to sort it out and pay penance. It's not your guilt in the first place. It's been taken for you. But it also means that we treat this big, glorious truth like lightly because we think, well, we weren't in that much trouble. You were in a huge amount of trouble, and you are now so safe. Hiding, blaming, and covering up. Those were the three things that humans used to have to do. Friends, in our community, I think there's still some hiding that goes on because we haven't taken this idea that seriously. We still feel ashamed of stuff. We still think that sin has some power to make you embarrassed, to give you a reason that you need to cover up, that there's some stuff that has to be done to make you good enough again. I think we still blame. I think in our relationships, there's still some competition and some deceit that goes on. I think we still absolutely are on the performance treadmill of trying to sow some kind of fig leaf. If you're a Christian... You have no right to do that. If you're not a Christian, if you're listening in, you're off the hook. But if if I believe the gospel, if I'm saying the gospel is the big idea of my life, how dare I hide? As if it's my performance under review. It's not my performance under review. It's Jesus' performance under review, which means I have no right to hide and keep people from aspects of my life and keep them in the dark and hold on to shame. I just don't have the right to anymore. I have no right to blame others. I get to take full responsibility for my life and go, well, the mistakes I made, I'm no longer afraid of. My, skin doesn't, my sin doesn't scare me. And it has no power over me. I'm not destined to make the same mistakes in future, which means you can't call me a liar and have me believe it just because I've told some lies. It's like I'm free from it now. So I messed up and it's paid for. If I mess up again, it'll be paid for. But not only did he die for me, he rose again and has given me a whole new way to live. I'm no longer destined to make those same mistakes. So I don't have to be afraid of my failings. And I certainly don't have to cover up. I certainly don't have to get on the treadmill of performance, and yet we do. I'm going to ask us to have a little private moment with God now as we close. But we we need to hold this idea really tight because we've got a tendency to go back to hiding and blaming and fig leaves. and, And we need a community that calls us away from that. And I suspect that sympathy is one of our big mistakes in your communities, when you're discussing the problem that just happened, when you're blaming something else, when you're feeling sorry for us, yourself, so often what we end up doing is just going, man, that sucks. I'm so sorry to hear that. Let's do better. Sympathy is the first part of your response, but it can't be all that you do. 
Because I think the way we speak determines whether we're a gospel community or not. And when I say, I'm so sorry to hear that, but what has God done for you? Who are you really in Christ? What are you going to do about that? Now we're starting to have a gospel conversation as opposed to this, I'm so sorry to hear that. I don't know if that's helpful. We certainly don't get to judge one another anymore. We certainly don't get to tolerate. We get to call one another up to being a gospel community. And I'd love us to do that. So would you bow your heads, please? All of us need the gospel to impact our lives. This great news. All of us need to see the horror of just how badly off we actually are. And then just how well off we are in Jesus. And so would you just have a conversation with your with your father right now where where does this good news need to impact your life I know that there's some here who haven't actually let this good news impact their life at all you may be sitting there thinking that you do still hide and blame and cover up and that you are still separated from this all satisfying God If that's you, I'm going to, in a moment, give you an opportunity to respond. You know, all that we have to do is believe that Jesus made this good news possible. That's all we have to do. Just believe in him. His life, his death on your behalf, and his resurrection to defeat death. Others of you are Christians, you're followers of Christ, but if you're honest, there are parts of your life that you still live as if the good news weren't really that good. And perhaps we're judging others and blaming them for stuff in our lives. Or perhaps you're hiding in shame and there's some stuff you just need to allow the light of the gospel onto to realize it's actually not that scary. Your sin is not that powerful. Perhaps there are Christians here, I'm sure there are, who in some area are trying to prove our worth, trying to perform for God. And we just need to stop sowing those ridiculous fig leaves and, try, and thinking that that makes us valuable or acceptable. Just ask your father, where does the gospel need to impact your life more? What does he want you to do about that? If you're here and you want to give your life to Jesus, you, you want to let the gospel apply to you, you realize that you are helpless and guilty and you want someone to make you able to choose life and give you legal access to life himself. And so today, you just want to believe in Jesus for the first time. Maybe once upon a time, you think you prayed some prayer, but you're not really sure, and you don't know that you've really experienced God, and you want to have him in your life. I'd just like you to stick up your hand. No one's going to look. Everyone's head is bowed. But today, you want to connect with God. Great. I see you. Great. I see you. Amazing. I see you, ma'am. Anyone else? There's going to be some inertia. You're not going to want to. Yeah, I see you. You're going to feel scared of the consequences, but deep down in your soul, you know this is the only way. Wonderful. That's such a great decision. All of heaven is celebrating. The decision you've just made is reverberating through eternity. I'm going to lead you in a prayer in just a second, but the truth is we all are going to need to pray the prayer that you're about to pray. Because even those of us who've been Christians for ages but need the gospel to apply to our lives more, we all need to pray this. I'm gonna, can, can you all stand? I know you've got your eyes closed. You might fall over. You're welcome to open your eyes for balance. But we're going to pray together the only rational prayer in response to the gospel, which is to ask God to forgive us of our sin, to heal us from our death, 
and then we're going to say we're going to follow him and trust him for the rest of our lives. That's essentially what we're going to pray. So you can mutter this or shout this out with all the joy that it deserves, but will you follow after me? Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for me. I recognize that I needed it. Please take away my guilt and please release me from death. I will follow you for the rest of my life. That's it. And as you pray that and me that, all hiding goes. All insecurity can peel off. All bitterness and resentment and deception and competition in relationships can fall to the ground. All the stress attached to religion and performance and trying to cover over is over. In Jesus' name, I declare these people free. Free to live in the love and life of God. Thank you, Jesus, so much that we can have moments like this. Amen.